Why settle for just living a good life when you can live a life optimized to achieve your human potential? Learn all the hacks that will transform your life from average to extraordinary. Welcome to Life Optimized with functional medicine expert, Dr. Neil Palvin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another great episode of the Life Optimized podcast. We talk and teach people how to improve their health, their fitness, and their lifestyle. Today, we have a great guest, Dr. Joe Lipsky from Reload Physical Therapy. And we're going to talk to him about everything from improving sports performance, how to use some health data and your from your wearables to work with your trainer and on your own to help boost performance. We're going to talk about dealing with some sport injuries, and I'm sure a lot, lot more. And Dr. Joe Lipsky is, has his BS in applied psychology from Farmingdale University and a doctorate of physical therapy from Columbia University Medical School. He uses combined experiences from his doctorate and continued education to deliver a unique blend of rehabilitation and performance therapy to his clients. Joe specializes in helping endurance athletes overcome injuries and improving performance. He's helped his clients complete their first marathon. 100-mile ultra and endurance races and Ironman races. When Joe isn't working, he loves playing golf, training for his own Ironman, which we're going to talk about a little bit here. So I'm sure a lot of his tips kind of go along with what he does for his clients and traveling to new places. So he has a very comprehensive bio, a couple other cool things that we're going to bring up. So thanks, Dr. Lipsky, for hopping on. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Dr. Paulvins, uh, great to be here and, you know, a huge fan of what you do. So, you know, always great to connect. So let's kind of go back. As you kind of mentioned your bio, you're not only the therapist, you're also a client. So you're into ultra endurance race. I know you've been training for some triathlons. So what got you involved in wanting to be a physical therapist and also work with athletes in terms of boosting their athletic performance? Is there something, were you an athlete in high school? What kind of got this whole thing rolling for you? Sure. So, yeah, I was a soccer player in high school. I played in college and in college, you know, I, like most people that get into the field, I got injured and I started working with a physical therapist and the physical therapist for a living got to work with athletes. And at that point in my journey, I'd realized I was probably not going to go professional. So I was like, okay, well, you know, this physical therapist gets to work with athletes. That sounds pretty good to me. I've, I've always had a passion for helping people and working directly with people. So I very much gravitated there. But while in school and while doing like internships, I realized that there was a huge discrepancy between, you know, the care that was being provided to people that want to live an athletic or, you know, active life and the things that were helping them get back there. So while I was in school, I had this desire to figure out, okay, well, how do we help provide the level of care that athletes get to the general public? And I found myself going out to Scottsdale, Arizona to work at a clinic called Exos. Uh, Exos is known for, you know, their sports performance blended with rehabilitation, specifically getting the upcoming class of college graduates ready for the NFL combine and entering the NFL. And they had a really unique blend of not just the physical therapists that understood strength training, but also their performance coaches that understood rehab. And it allowed these professionals to work really well together. So I really gravitated towards that and I thought, okay, well, how can we bring this type of care to the public? And, you know, I met the founder of Reload, Dr. Ryan Chow, and we were, you know, we were close while going to school and we had a very like-minded approach to how we wanted to help people. 
And, you know, look, I, I think majority of us that are athletes growing up have this, you know, super special dream of going pro that not that it's unrealistic for everyone, but I'm sure genetics plays a large portion. And if you're not dealt that hand, you know, how can you still enjoy those sports that you like playing in the context of your life? And, you know, that's really where we wanted to bring this is, okay, how do we provide this level of care to people that are trying to be active, trying to improve their performance? And, you know, I'm just like anyone else. So how did I get into endurance racing? I needed a goal. I needed a, a something new to train for. I wanted something different. Uh, I wanted something that was also linked to optimal health and longevity. So I started learning about cardiovascular training from Lance Parker. I'm sure you've heard of Lance. He's one of the founding trainers on the mirror. He used to be a pro soccer player as well. And I started learning about this cardiovascular training. You know, everyone does cardio. Everyone like knows what cardio is. But when you really do a deep dive into cardio, you realize that there's really unbounded limit. Like the benefit to cardio is limitless. And if you just learn the specifics of what it actually does to the body in terms of how hard you work, how long do you work? what's your heart rate doing during that time, you can target specific adaptations in your body for healthy longevity. So I figured, all right, let me just go for it and sign up for an Ironman race. And I fell in love with it a couple of years ago. And ever since then, I've been doing them on my own and helping a ton of clients with it. And that's kind of how I got to where I am now. I think kind of how I became a doctor. I had my own complaints and I wanted to see in doctors and healthcare what I didn't see when I was a patient. So I think that leads a lot of people to where their goals are. So, I mean, cardio training has insanely morphed over the last probably five, even two years, because you have, it used to be pretty much you had to go to a special place, spend hundreds of dollars on everything from VO2 max testing and RMR and all this other stuff. And now most people can get that on their wrist or or wearing a strap in for under a hundred bucks or probably under 200 bucks at this point. Um, I think, so explain in more detail, what is cardio training? I mean, are you, is that just comes kind of to know what your resting heart rate is and HRV is, and then are then, are you adding in zone training, like zone one through zone five, or is it all of the above? So I think when you look at training, right, I think it's important to understand, like, why do you do cardio versus strength training and what are the purposes, right? So at Reload, the philosophy that we abide by is, you know, we're trying to help people meet physical activity guidelines. Physical activity guidelines is defined as at least 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous cardiovascular activity per week, along with two days of resistance training. And there's a ton of research in terms of years lived disability free, and then also from a longevity standpoint of people that meet physical activity guidelines have way less disease, they have way less uh, risks of other forms of mortality. So, you know, such as like falls, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease. So that's really why, you know, why we exercise, right? And, you know, trying to prevent people from living a sedentary life and all of the other chronic diseases that go along with it is why we do a mix of cardiovascular training and strength training. Now, how does cardio play into this and what are the differences? How do you know what to do, what not to do? Well, it's similar to strength training. You could lift really heavy things slowly, like doing a max deadlift, or you could do like a kettlebell swing where you're lifting a lighter weight and moving it much faster. Those have different effects on the body. Cardio is no different. When you look at the, you know, the heart, the lungs, and how those things work together to form your cardiovascular system, 
depending on the intensity and the duration at which you work, you're going to get different adaptations. For example, the most common scale to break down the heart rate intensity zones is what you mentioned before, zones one through five, right? So zone one is, you know, equated to like a warm up or like a cool down pace where you're you're sweating, but you're you're working really uh, sustainably. Like you can do it for a very long period of time. You could have a conversation. Zone two is just a little bit more advanced, right? You could still have a conversation, but you're probably sweating a good amount. Zone three, you're starting to get a little bit more into, you know, anaerobic type work. It's probably going to be harder for you to form a certain conversation. And then zone four, you get into your anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold, where you're very much having a hard time forming full sentences. You're probably only talking one word at a time. And then zone five, where you're maximally working as hard as you possibly can, looks very much at like, what is your peak heart rate and what can you work to your max? You need to be able to understand like, what are the benefits of training in each zone and when is the purpose to train in each zone? For most people, it's beneficial to do majority of their cardiovascular work in zone one and two. Uh, zone one and two is you know defined as like long steady state cardio, and the reason it's so good is um you know Dr. Paulvin right the mitochondrial benefits to the cellular level and the cellular health that it provides us with, and then you know occasionally probably once a week or maybe once every other week doing more like that zone five super high intensity you know, we'll say zone four or five, super high intensity work. That's more working on your ceiling, right? Like your peak or how high can you work your heart rate? Working at those two intensities is really beneficial for most people. Let's give us a couple of definitions or people who are just hearing about this for the first time, or kind of, again, there's a lot of things out there. So when you say max heart rate, how do, when you're dealing with a client, how are you helping them determine what their max heart rate is in terms of goal, or are you just kind of ballparking for them? So max heart rate, you know, an easy but relatively like inaccurate way of measuring it is just doing 220 minus your age. There are other formulas out there. Look, the best way to understand what your heart rate zones are, are to get tested, do some sort of cardiometabolic testing. Pinoli is very good with it. That's kind of how I do it. Lance Parker, who I mentioned before, does all my testing. And we test about once a quarter to establish the zones. But I think an easy place to start for most people is do 220 minus your age. And then that's like your max heart rate. Your zone five is a certain percentage of your max heart rate. Zone four is a certain percentage. Zone three, zone two gets like 50 to 60%. Then zone one is, you know, 40 to 50%. When you say anaerobic threshold, define that for people who are listening. Gotcha. So basically, when you're working, you have what we call energy systems. So what in your body is providing you with energy, right? Where is that coming from? Your two main sources of energy, right? We're keeping it super high level is aerobic or anaerobic, right? Aerobic is much more in terms of longer efforts that are lower intensity, you're probably running at like lower speeds or biking at lower speeds. The predominant fuel source will be fat. When you get into anaerobic, you're gonna start using more carbs or glucose for energy as well. Those are gonna be the more intense, shorter bout type efforts. Think like, you know, a 400 meter sprint versus like a five mile run. So you let me right into my next question. So I'm, I mean, I'm a longer distance runner. I am never 
going to do it. I'm, I'm not a sprinter and there will be. So when you're training somebody who's a sprinter or somebody who's a soccer player or a tennis player who has like quick starts and stops burst type athlete versus somebody who's training for a triathlete, how do you, I assume there's different regimens and different ways you're going to deal with somebody who's in one bucket versus somebody who's running a marathon versus a 40 meter sprinter. For sure. Now, look, everyone needs a foundation, right? You have to build a foundation. We look at the body in terms of like a pyramid. You need a very large base of the pyramid to build a high peak. If you have a small base with a tall peak, you know, that's you're at risk of falling over, right? And that's where people start to get into like overtraining or you're probably at risk for some sort of injury. So, you know, we do both low intensity stuff with our 400 meter sprinters I do low intensity work with our marathon runners. We also make them work at higher intensities, but once everyone has established that nice, good foundational base. Yeah. If you want to be a 400 meter sprinter, you need to be able to work at higher intensities. You need to probably be able to work into zone four and five. It's going to give your cardiovascular system the biggest bang for your buck in terms of helping your heart supply the rest of your body with blood and oxygen and fuel and everything as efficiently as possible versus an endurance athlete, you know, let's just, you know, if you're a competitive marathon runner, it's different, but if you're running, let's just say like a three thirty to a four hour marathon, you want to make sure that you're predominantly using fat as your main fuel source over the course of a long race. It's way more efficient and way more tax, way less taxing on the body. So it's important to be able to have a large zone two or large zone one or two for more, you know, longer endurance athletes. So when we're dealing with them again, somebody was recording this. Uh, we just had a world record broken in the marathon a couple of weeks. Ago. I want to be training <laughs> just like he is and run like four minute, whatever he was running. I think he was running sub five the whole marathon. And that's just to me insane. But so what are the one or two biggest mistakes you see in people who are training? Is it they're doing too much, too little? I mean, I know I see it. Are, pay, are they doing just two leg, especially runners? Are they all doing these two legged things? Are they doing all cardio no, and no lifting? What are the one or two biggest things that people are doing wrong when they're training for competitive sports? Oof, that's a tough question. I mean, I think it's important to define who we're working with. So it's like, I see mostly endurance athletes. The biggest issue with most endurance athletes is all they do is their sport. So runners like to run. Runners don't like to lift. So the big thing with runners is runners generally run too much. I find that there's way too big an emphasis on just like weekly mileage. It's important and it's a good gauge for how, what distances can you handle? But I think most runners probably don't need to run more than three times, maybe four times a week. Prioritizing more strength work is going to be incredibly beneficial right? Knowing how to implement the strength work is really hard though, because obviously your goal isn't to just get as strong as possible. Your goal is to use the strength work to build up strength so you can ultimately get faster or last a longer time. And also that strength work can't take away, like you can't do a crazy amount of deadlifts, be super sore, and then you can't run for four days, right? Like that's not beneficial. You know, at the same time, the other big mistake I see people making is they don't measure things. They kind of just go based on gut feeling. And if you're a super seasoned athlete, I think that works. If you've gone through a period of time where you measure things and you know what intensities you're working at in terms of how high your heart rate is based on how you're feeling, that's a very like expert level skill. I think most people, myself included, need a heart rate monitor 
I think most people that try and do like the lower intensity stuff that we were talking about, like zone one and two work, uh, most people work too hard and they start crossing, you know, from their aerobic threshold into, you know, anaerobic work. And it's a very different adaptation that the body will then result in if we work too hard. We don't get those lower zones built up over time. And what you start seeing is people don't know how to use fat as a fuel source. They start only utilizing carbs. And from a performance standpoint, that's super important, right? Whether your goals are more aesthetic or your goals are more performance oriented. So, yeah, I think the two biggest things, you know, with my population being mainly runners is, you know, endurance athletes is they like to do their own sport and people don't measure things enough, right? It's a whole nother rabbit hole that I see. And I'm sure you see is that now with everybody having a wearable of some sort, if not multiple, they have data. They're not sure exactly what it means or what to do with it. So then it's a skill of trying to, again, A, teaching what it means. Then, like you said, the really, when you hit the right perfect combo is they have the data, they know how to use it, and they actually abide by it. Because I think they always see, they again, for some reason, that mindset is more more is always better. And then a lot of these things, as we know, recovery is more important now and making sure you're doing in all the buckets, you need to do lower and higher intensity. It's not, again, going as fast as you can. It's not always going as long as you can. So I think it's, it's trying to now is really trying to educate patients. So I think, and I think you brought it up. I mean, I think the starting point is looking, is getting a heart rate strap above the Polar H10. I don't know if you have a specific brand that you use and using that as your initial measure. One, you're going to just know if your heart rate is spiking too much, or you have, like you said, those peaks and troughs that you may be in trouble. So you can use it overall intensity of your workout, but also you can use, like you mentioned, a figuring out on your own before you get a complete box testing where your zones are. So is that the, your first piece of equipment you're using or first piece of data you're using with, pay, with your clients or using other things as well to kind of get them going in terms of what they need to know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, some people are more into it than others. You know, I mentioned like the talk test before where based on what your ability to have a conversation is usually correlates with how high your heart rate is. For a lot of people that, you know, look, they just want to meet physical activity guidelines. Maybe they're looking to lose a little bit of weight. So they want to safely implement cardio. I tell them, go on the treadmill, get really sweaty. But if you can't have a conversation with me, like if we were on the phone chatting and you couldn't have a conversation, you're working too hard. Right. So that's like level one with people. Level two is, I agree with you, I love the H10 polar heart rate strap. And then I like the Garmin watch too. I think it gives me a lot of good data and they link together really nicely. Once you have that strap in the Garmin, it gives you your heart rate zones. Like it, it kind of will give you based on your height, age, and overall fitness level, it'll give you like an average of based on everyone else that's like you, here's what most people's heart rate zones are. And that's a really good place to start right? Because you start developing the skill and awareness of how hard am I working? And based on how hard I'm working, what zones am I in, right? Like for me, I like a lot of athletes, I was a zone three monster where I would keep crossing over into that anaerobic zone. And I wasn't used to working at lower intensities. And going through this process, it was a huge eye-opening experience that I could actually work a little less hard and get more benefit. And I saw that translate into a lot of areas of my life. And I think that's why I'm sticking with the training is, and this kind of training is like, I think I deal with stress better. I sleep better. My energy levels throughout the day are way better. And 
you know, I'm, I'm training for Ironmans, but I'm also not training like 12 hours a week. I have a pretty demanding job. I work probably, I work out probably like five, six hours a week. And when you know how to do things right, you actually don't need to get the same amount of time in that your races, you know, look at when you start peaking, you do, but you know, for the most part, you don't. Work out smarter, not harder. And you also have the advantage of a, I've been to your location. You have every piece of equipment you ever could use. You don't, you're right there. You have no excuse not to work out. Does the Garmin give a lot of the data that the other wearables, like an Apple Watch has as well? Or does it pretty much just give you the zones and the heart rate? Uh, the main thing is the Garmin will give you live data and it'll tell you what zone you're in, in addition to what your heart rate is. I find that, you know, the Polar Watch is also pretty good, but the Apple Watch just tells you your heart rate. So you have to then know your zones while you're training. Which again, it could work if like you're that good at memorizing it. That's fine. You know, for most people like me, I just like knowing am I in the, you know, gray, blue, green, orange, or red. That's another thing to think about. So unless you're really good at it, yeah, it makes perfect sense. You mentioned, I mean, I've tried lactate testing. You mentioned it really briefly. When I try to do it the first, I've tried it twice. I looked like I was attacked by a vampire. <laughs> finger stick yourself. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm next time I do it, I have a couple colleagues in the city who do it is that something you do on any of your clients is that something that i mean i know it's pretty much advanced once you've kind of gotten the zone thing managed you want to know your your lactate thresholds and things like that is that something you utilize a lot i actually don't think lactate threshold is a great thing to test via a blood lactate sample if you're a cyclist that's fine because you generally do the test while you're on the bike and it's easy to like finger prick yourself or like prick your ear. I'm trying to imagine that they're good for them. Yeah. Right. But like when you're running, you have to literally stop running. Your heart rate's going to come down and that's going to affect the test. That's actually why I like testing with Lance doing the Pinelli because you don't have to stop anything. And there are a lot of other similar markers that'll give you that same data, like, you know, ventilatory threshold, where like your breathing will start changing, or, you know, looking at the rate at which you expel carbon dioxide relative to how fast you're breathing will also tell you those things, right? So there's a lot of different ways to get the measurement. I like the Pinoy too, because it's just, you don't have to prick yourself either. Like, you know, you're, you're wearing a mask, so it's measuring how much CO2 you're outputting, and that'll kind of tell you like what's going on in your blood. It's one of those things now I see if you listen to the high-end trainers of who do a lot of endurance athletes, they're either in one camp or the other. Like you have to do it this way, you have to do it that way. And just both get you the same place. Like you said, it's just a question of what you're what's easier. And lactate testing, unless you really know what you're doing, can get very complicated. And like you said, sometimes results aren't as accurate as they probably could be. You talked you meant in terms of recovery, recovery is important. You mentioned the fact of again, overtraining, use that word a lot where patients are doing too much. Do you encourage recovery or you do you have what favorite tools you have for recovery with your clients? Yeah. So when when we talk about recovery, right, I think it's important to like define it a little bit. So there's this thing called the stress recovery adaptation cycle or the GAS cycle, right? Like where if your baseline is, let's just say you feel at hundred percent after you work out that next day, you shouldn't feel 100%, right? You stressed yourself. You should probably dip down to like 80%. So you can't do the same things that you did the day before that next day. So now we get into the context of, okay, well, what is recovery? How do you get from 80% back to 100%? right? Obviously like rest is a part of it. Sleep is a huge part of it. Nutrition is a huge part of it, but also the type of workouts that you do, right? Because you can't just work out and then wait till you're hundred percent. The key with working out is consistency and being able to do more. So 
at reload, we take the polarized method of training where you do basically a high day, which high intensity refers to days where your heart rate probably gets up into like zone four or five repeatedly, and or you stress out your central nervous system a lot with stuff like sprinting where you're moving at very fast speeds or lifting very heavy where you feel pretty exhausted afterwards. Right. Those are things we define as high intensity days. You know, the volume at which you do might be also another way to categorize it. But then after that, you need to do what we call low intensity workouts. This is where stuff like zone one or two come into play. Zone one is more recovery, way more recovery than zone two. I wouldn't even consider zone two recovery, but doing stuff where your heart rate gets up, but you're not crushing yourself. So just from an exercise perspective, this is why you can't do you know, stuff like Barry's Bootcamp or Soul Cycle or these really high intensity group fitness classes five days a week. Like you will burn out, you won't last. It's just a matter of time. No matter if you last six months, three months, five years, it really doesn't matter. You eventually won't be able to sustain it. So when we look at recovery, right, we define it as what do you need to do to be able to get back to 100%? And not that you ever need to be fully at 100%, but at least it gives us like an operational way to define like what we're working on. Right. So one of the biggest things that we look at for recovery is just what does your program look like? Like, Or for everyone else, like what does your schedule look like? What are your training days and what are you doing on those training days? Because if you come in with knee pain and we identify that like you're just not recovering from your workouts and you're doing too many of these high intensity workouts, it doesn't really matter what I do for you. Right. Like you're just going to go back doing the same things. And it doesn't matter if I try to get you stronger, you're not going to be able to adapt to that stimulus and recover. So the first thing is we look at everyone's program. We have to educate people. Look, like you're probably trying to do too much and this is how you need to change up your workouts. And that's really, honestly, I think that's like 90% of it. Obviously, if people aren't sleeping, that's a whole nother issue. And if people aren't eating, that's a big issue as well. But looking at people's big program is super important. And our lifestyle I mean, like you said, it's all about the foundation, lifestyle. If they're not sleeping, and which is a big part of recovery and the hormones need to build muscle or they're eating whatever their diet is, they need that protein intake. It's, it, a lot of what you're doing is going to be a lot tougher to do. So in terms of, Matt, you mentioned the term maxing or max workout. This is kind of, you talk to 10 different trainers or therapists, they give you 10 different answers. When is your goal with somebody for them to be doing their max weight until failure? Are you happy if, if they're just hitting their max a little bit less than that? What is your when you're trying with somebody to get their max workout on that day? What is your goal in terms of their lifting? Again, some of the things to the older school trainers there, you must lift heavy and you must lift to failure where you can't like move your arms. And some other it seems like other trainers are like, hey, if they get to eight six, eight reps at their max weight or close to it. I'm, I'm content with that. It depends on the person and their goal, first and foremost, right? Like if we do have people that compete competitively for powerlifting um, and look, if you want to compete competitively, you have, you have to lift heavy. But um, if you're not like a competitive in any sport and you're just exercising for general health, I think we as healthcare and fitness professionals have to ask ourselves the question, like what is health? What is optimal health? Can you define it? And you can, but the caveat is health isn't an outcome. Health is a journey or the journey is the outcome, right? We know that health and being healthy is all about performing behaviors consistently over time. So when you look at what behaviors we need to perform consistently over time, we look at the acronym SNAPS. 
right? So S is smoking, N is nutrition, A is alcohol, P is physical activity. And then there are three S's where you have sleep, stress, and social connections. So we'll narrow down to our conversation of physical activity. Most people don't need a max out in any strength context. You know, if you really like it and it's a lot of fun and it keeps you engaged in exercising and being consistent with it, then that's great. But, you know, similar to types of like car racing, like drag racing, the cars are meant to go as fast as they possibly can. And there are often a lot of accidents, right? The closer you work to your max intensity, whether it's lifting heavy weight or running at high speeds, you're going to be more at risk for injury. So you don't necessarily need to work at your absolute max for anything, but you got to make things challenging enough so that they change you, but not too challenging where you get broken down over time. So we do have something called Barbell Club at Reload, right? And the Barbell Club is meant to help people develop strength. It's great for a lot of my runners. I have a lot of my runners do it. And we've, uh, you know, developed ways to test people safely. Our coach Marlon here is absolutely fantastic. He works with a lot of, you know, different athletes, professional, general population too. And, you know, we can identify basically what's hard at five. And then we use a term called reps in reserve. So how many more reps could you have done? So let's just say you did five reps, but you had three reps left in the tank. You just basically did an eight rep max, right? So then you can calculate what percentage of someone's eight rep max, what percentage of someone's eight reps can they do for one? And then from that number, you can then develop a program that you can use over time. So, you know, to answer your question, obviously not as straightforward as you'd like. I don't think anyone needs to like go to the gym and see, and like the goal is, all right, how much weight we're lifting off the floor today? Like, let's lift as much as we possibly can. I think it's, how can we keep you healthy? How can we find something that's challenging enough to change you? And it's meaningful towards your goals. Again, I don't think anything in the training space or the workout space is A or B. I think it's definitely, it's just knowing what, knowing what the options are and find what works best for you. And like you said, if a power lifter is definitely training differently than a ballerina. Some, there's going to be some core principles there that are the same. Probably that power lifter can bench press the ballerina, but besides that, uh, it's all it's it's different. But you, again, there's some core principles. And kind of when you talk about the core principle, I know I see a lot on your on your guys' social media. Is again, it's all, lifting is important, but it's also doing specific exercises and working specific body parts to optimize your performance, no matter what your goals are. So, I and mean, one I want to talk about, which I don't think it's enough information out there is the importance of doing specific things in terms of leg range of motion. I know you guys also do a lot of things actually at the feet and the ankles, especially with your runners. I think for some reason, I mean, again, you always talk people that you have like the bird legs and stuff, but how important is it for, especially for endurance athletes to be doing specific techniques and exercises, the feet, the legs, the, even at the ankle mobility. Yeah. I find that the feet are often very neglected and, Look, I think like it's not about specific exercises per se, but it's about developing, you know, certain foundations within the body. And some of those foundations looks at like foot strength, ankle, like lower leg strength, right? So we'll take the, the context of runners into this example, right? So, all right, what is running? So we define running as basically you're never on two feet while moving forward, right? You're basically jumping from one leg to the other. So then let's just keep reverse engineering. What is, what goes into that? Right? So if you're always on one leg, well, can you balance on one leg? 
Do you have single leg balance? Okay, well, then you're also jumping from one leg to the other. Jumping requires strength. Do you have single leg strength? And then you could just break that down farther, right? Okay, well, what goes into single leg strength? Do you have strength at the feet? Do you have strength at the calves? Do you have strength in the quads, the groin, or adductors, abductors, the glutes, right? And then can you put it all together and jump from one leg to the other? That's going to look more at like, you know, that musculotendinous junction. That's more like elasticity, right? Can your tendons quickly stretch and then quickly shorten without being coming compromised? And then, you know, where we find that most people lack is we just go on Instagram, we look at what everyone's doing. And basically what everyone isn't doing is what they probably need, right? It just, so we look at what's trending and whatever is not trending is probably what people need. So fitness influencers aren't always showing us the right stuff. It's not that they're showing us the wrong stuff. It's just, they're not showing us everything, right? It's not cool to show sometimes either, but. uh... Yeah. Look, training your feet definitely isn't sexy, but it's important. And when you look at the function. For the episode, there you go. Yeah. So, you know, look, so for example, like the foot and lower leg is very neglected, right? But when you look at runners, each time you land in a running, in running, you basically have to absorb four to eight times your body weight with each step. The only muscle in the lower leg that's actually capable of helping us absorb that force is the soleus. The soleus is a smaller muscle in the calf, generally behind the gastroc. People, when they work it, they'll feel it like a little bit lower down in their lower leg and on the outside. And it's a super important muscle for force absorption, and it's highly neglected. It's best worked when you're on either one or two legs, your knees are bent to about 30 degrees, and you do calf raises while maintaining that range in your knees. There's ways to progress it. There's ways to do it differently, depending on if you have other injuries or other things we're working on. But that muscle is hugely neglected. And, you know, I guess, you know, I'm pooping on social media, but I just posted about it with one of my colleagues, Jenna. So we did a whole series about it on my Instagram. Now it's, and there's it's a couple, man, you guys have posted a couple other therapists will post about the importance of it. And again, and I see it on the other end where then they're coming and their hamstrings or their glutes are, I mean, the hamstrings and their gastrocs are tight. They have no ankle movement. What Soever, and they're wondering why they have pain, especially if you're a long distance runner. If you can't push off on your feet, then you're going to have a hard time. You're going to use other muscle and you're just going to not do well. So it's important. And it's something that if your trainer's not working with you, you better figure things out then reassess things. So what's great about you actually is that not only you just reload work on athletic performance, but you're also going to help athletes if they have some type of injury going on on top of that. So we talked about the legs. So let's talk about the two other things that we, I always see, and I'm sure you do as well. Or I mean, let's start with the shoulders. In terms of what's the most common issue that you see with the, just not even do high performance athlete, but the general athlete that they're doing wrong in terms of the shoulders. They're not working on range of motions or something else that they're not doing that they should need to be paying attention to. So the biggest thing with the shoulder is I feel like no one has a shoulder mobility issue. If you look at the shoulders, shoulders is one of the most mobile joints in the body. And if you look at what holds the shoulder together from an anatomical standpoint, you basically have the labrum, you have some ligaments that hold the shoulder in place. And then you have a ton of different muscles that attach from the shoulder to the shoulder blade to the rib cage and different parts of the body. So when you look at the shoulder and what provides it its health and its function is 
large majority of the muscular stability or the dynamic stability that the muscles create. So you need to train your body in accordance with that. And it really doesn't matter if you have a labral tear, a rotator cuff tear, you know, impingement is another great word, which has been completely debunked in terms of, is it actually an issue? Yeah. Okay. Learn something new today. You need to focus on the dynamic stabilizers of the shoulder. But the key thing with the shoulder is the shoulder is only going to be as stable as the shoulder blade. The shoulder blade is only going to be as stable as the rib cage. And the rib cage is only as good as the rest of the body is functioning. So the key to the shoulder is looking at the dynamic stabilizers, but then looking at the rest of the body based on the activity that you want to be able to do, right? So I work with a lot of golfers and they'll develop shoulder issues as well or elbow issues, right? Actually, like your hips and feet are probably more important to look at if you have a shoulder issue than anything. And when I was in school at Columbia, actually, we did a research study looking at baseball players, and we found that people that had weak hips were more at risk for shoulder and elbow injuries than people that had like weaker shoulders. So it's okay. I mean, this is all new to me. So you're, I mean, I mean, the way the body is connected makes perfect sense. So it's not just about Okay, so testing rotator cuff strength, making sure the four rotator cuff muscles, it's, it's again, right. We do look at is the motion of the scapula, the scapular with the thoracics and the spot and the rib cage, as you mentioned, but it's comes, that is the lower half the most important in golfers that all athletes in general. It's all athletes, right? And not to say that it's not important to look at the shoulder, the shoulder blade and, you know, the thoracic spine. It definitely is. But if a large majority of the force that you're producing comes from your legs, right? Like a pitcher, you know, you look at, you know, any pitcher, right? They're generating a large amount of their force from their legs and they're just transmitting it through their arm, right? So yes, an injury might pop up in the arm, but is it because that shoulder isn't strong enough or is it because their body is actually forced to produce too much force with that arm and they're not able to access other things like their hips and their feet? So again, I don't know. It's not that straightforward, right? But we find that a lot of people with shoulder issues, you know, they often do a ton of shoulder strengthening exercises, like they do their eyes, their wives, their T's, their banded rotator cuff stuff. Then I might even do some side planks and some planks, but then they don't get better, right? Or they're not, they don't feel pain when they're resting, but when they go back to the things they want to do, it still hurts. And it's because you have to look at these other things and how they work into the equation. Does that apply to some, I mean, again, you probably see it as well. I see that, oh, I have a, they have a small partial tear in their supraspinatus or a small partial tear in the subscap or even in the, I mean, labrums may be different to a certain extent. So you're saying that even if somebody has a small tear, is you want to use some intention in the shoulder, but it's a full body approach no matter what. It's not just inject the shoulder. Let's put more cortisone and more PRP in the shoulder. You still got to do a full body approach for that person no matter whatever level they are as an athlete to get them better in most cases. Correct. Like pain is independent of function in my opinion, right? Yes. The two are related and generally the better you can get someone to function. And when you look at function, you have to look at strength, mobility, you know, coordination and stuff. But when you look at pain, yes, sure. Cortisone is great for pain, but it's temporary. And often when you go back to the the activity that you want to do, you have the same issue. Really what it gets at is like the body's not like a kitchen sink, right? There's a great article in ProRepublica written by David Epstein. And the article is labeled, you know, when evidence says no, but doctors say yes. And what it looks at is, okay, there's a lot of like conventional theories that we've had about the body. The most common one looks at things like how the cardiovascular system was once looked at like a kitchen sink, where when there's a clog in one of the pipes of the sink, 
you know, that's going to cause, you know, stuff to get backed up. And if you equate it back to the heart, that's the things that cause cause heart attacks, right? So what did we invent? We invented stents. Okay, but we started putting stents in a ton of people's arteries because we thought that cholesterol or stuff was clogging the arteries, but then those stents actually didn't prevent a lot of heart disease or heart attacks, right? So it just goes to show that the body isn't as straightforward as as the kitchen sink is. So when you take that into account for orthopedics and you look at the research about people with certain shoulder injuries and when they get surgery versus when they have a conservative approach, most people two years after a rotator cuff are actually in the same place, whether they had surgery or not, as long as they rehabbed it properly. The key thing was, was the rehab good? And look, there's a lot of bad rehab out there. There's a lot of bad physical therapists out there. So I'm trying to help the problem just as much as anyone else. But basically it's just, things aren't as straightforward as like what's in an image, right? Just because you have a rotator cuff tear or a labral tear, it's not like a death sentence. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? And we've worked together on patients that we've helped them avoid surgery many times. Exactly. So let me, and I'm going to jump on my soapbox a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's certain things where you're going to get good. You're going to be good no matter what you do, who you're seeing. And there's not a huge gap in quality. Physical therapists, there is a huge gap in terms of poor quality versus high quality. And that's something you need to understand. If you're dealing with a physical therapist who is pretty much not putting their hands on you pretty much like Joe said, you have a rotator cuff tear. We're going to do eyes, Y's and T's. We're going to do a couple of band exercises and then send you off with the assistant for another 35 minutes. That's not going to get you better. You want them to put the hand on you. You want them to be doing a full body approach for them to be able to get you where you need to be because otherwise you'll be back with your doctor a couple of weeks later, having the same pain. And then we're going to send you some, send you over to reload PT and, uh, get you some real help. So what is the one thing that you see now commonly that you wish you could just let your clients know or let doctors know that just drives you crazy? That you just, it's something that's not, that's pretty simple that people just don't get or don't do, or maybe don't know about, like we talked about the feet before. I think we need to take a different approach. Like not everything is black and white, meaning like just because you have pain doesn't mean you need to like rest and go through rice. One of the most important things to, you know, staying healthy that we've mentioned is physical activity. That's independent of if you have like an orthopedic injury, right? So I get it. Like, I'm not asking everyone that has shoulder pain to just keep shoulder pressing overhead. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, yes, you might have an orthopedic injury, but while you're trying to figure out what it is, just maintain some level of physical activity. It'll help you more than you have any idea because once you stop training, you become deconditioned and if you're going to rehab, you have to then get fit again on top of rehab, which makes it even harder. So even if you have back pain, right? Like the answer isn't always rest. Stay moving in whatever capacity you can. I mean, I hate when patients, I had a patient actually last week who's running the marathon. Actually, a couple people asked me, they're like, well, I'm just going to stay in bed for three days. I'm like, no, don't do that. Bed and rest is, I mean, is one of the worst things that you can do. I mean, study after study after study show that immobility, unless it's an insanely serious injury, is, is going to make you worse, not better. So as we kind of, as we wind some things down here, so where do you see things going in, in the sports training realm? Is it going to be more, again, is it going to be more data-driven? Is there something that you where you see things going in the next year or two, both in general and at reload? Yeah, well, so it's definitely more data-driven, but I think everything's going to 
get like basically everyone sees exercise right now is checking a box where it's like, oh yeah, I do my strength training and go to like, you know, my group fitness classes. But it's like, if you're going to a group fitness class and you're running on the treadmill and doing weights at the same time and the weights never get heavier and you never get faster, are you really improving or are you just checking a box, right? As we've discussed on this podcast, right? Exercising is way more than just checking a box. So I think from an exercise standpoint, the world is going to get more into programs, meaning what does your schedule, what does your exercise routine look like? And how does your whole program affect what your goals are or what issues you're currently struggling with? Whether that's an orthopedic injury, whether that's a chronic disease such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or diabetes, right? Because either you're doing too much, you're doing too little, or you're you're trying and you're doing your best, but you need to just learn how to do things a little bit differently based on your your body and your history. So you know it's gonna the field's gonna get more way more educated, and it's gonna be more program oriented than anything. I agree. I think that's where we're going to overall health as opposed to just focus on injury. And I, um, I'm not sure if you do it or not. What do you, I just want to get your opinion on what is your opinion on these telehealth or tele PT sessions is something that's useful for most patients now, or is that something that you can, are there other are tools really good at this point where you can assess range of motion or is this something that still needs a lot of work to really be successful? It's definitely great, especially for people that don't have access to quality physical therapy in their area. I see people all over the world. I have people in London, Singapore, South Africa, different parts of the States. It's definitely limited in terms of two things. It's limited in terms of what that person has access to and also what that person's confidence is. Uh, Confidence and an access to equipment is a challenge. And confidence is actually the most important thing because I just think to myself, like if I didn't know what I was doing and I had this injury and I was trying to say like, oh, move, do all these things and listen to a guy on a computer. It's like, what if something went wrong? Right? Like, yeah, it's all great when things progress in a nice linear fashion, but we know that's not how the body works, right? Like there's ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And it's hard to do that virtually. You know, we're still, I think, learning how to develop relationships online. And I think that's shown where people that don't need to go back into the office want to go back into the office because it's, you're able to build a different level of trust in person. That being said, you know, look at reload art philosophy is all education and exercise. We do very little hands-on stuff. So it translates really well to online, but where we see it being very beneficial is when people are confident enough to try something different. Makes perfect sense. I think it's great that people have access to don't have access to wherever they are, but now more people are much more nomadic and mobile and they may be able to see you in New York once or twice, and then they could be wherever in the world and they're still going to get that same level of care and not have to either have different therapists or not have any care at that point. So we've talked, I mean, I love Reload uh, PT. I've been there several times. I've sent my clients there. So tell us how they can find you guys, what you guys offer, and how if they have any questions specifically for you, how they can reach out and what do you guys have coming up? For sure. So, you know, we our company's name is Reload Physical Therapy and Fitness. And we offer both physical therapy and different fitness services. Our goal is really to help people live sustainable lives and to help people meet physical activity guidelines. So most of the people that come to us come for pain and injury. And then the people that stay and want to train with us often transition to our fitness services 
where we have one-on-one training or, you know, we love our small groups. We find that a lot more people do better in smaller groups of four to six people where they can still get more individualized attention and everyone's on a program. Like when you come into reload, you're not just coming in and doing your own thing. You're either working with a PT, you're working with a trainer one-on-one, or you're executing a program and you're coming in for a class as a part of your program. You know, we get people on the right track in terms of this is your program, this is your schedule, this is what you're doing. You know, if you want to get in touch with us, I recommend going to our website. You could fill out an inquiry form. I'm the director of client care here. So you're going to talk to me before you even come in. If you want to get in touch with me directly, my email is joe at reloadpt.com. I'd recommend uh, following us online at reloadpt, or you could follow me as well at Dr. Joe Lipsky. You know, we just try and be a source of education and a reliable source of information on Instagram. That's really what, what we're trying to do. Definitely check out their content on, on Instagram. I don't know if you guys are on TikTok yet, but I mean, it's definitely very... Right. TikTok too. Things you never thought you'd be doing in, in PT school, it, you're now doing, at least you're not having to do dances or anything, but you're good there. But uh, there's really great content and very informative, very quick how you'll think that you actually need that are going to apply to anybody out there. So thanks to Dr. Joe Lipsky from Reload for helping us out today and give us great input. We're going to put all his links in the show notes when this comes out. And thanks again. Thanks for joining us. It was great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doc. Always great talking to you. Talk to you soon. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a biohacker, or an athlete, if you're ready to take the next steps to optimize your life, visit drpaulvin.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N dot com.